You know, it's at times like this, when I'm stuck in a Vogon airlock with a man from Beetlejuice about to die of asphyxiation in deep space, that I really wish I'd listened to what my mother told me when I was young. Why, what did she tell you? I don't know. I didn't listen. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing life, the universe, and everything at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm depressed. <laughs> well, this time, uh, you all better listen up out there, or I shall rend thee in the gobber warts with my blurgle crunch and see if I don't. <laughs> because, of course, this is episode number 42, and there was never any question that we would have to cover The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for episode number 42. And so that is what we're going to do. Interestingly, there's kind of a twisted adaptational history of this, at least to us, because I think the first, at least for me, the first thing I was aware of was the book, and I think that holds for Colin as well. It, yeah, it does. And what about you, James? Ditto. So when we put a post out there on Facebook to say that we were going to be doing this for episode number 42, our friend and guest host, Phil Nichols, responded that we would have to cover the radio play. Because that's the first thing that came out, and my mind was completely blown by that, because I had no idea that the radio series actually preceded the book. And was that the same for all three of us? Oh, yeah, I had uh, no yeah, idea. Yeah, I think so. And, of course, I'm quite delighted, because the radio play is awesome. Yes. Um, but we, we will get to that in due time. But So, thank you, Michael. So, <laughs> uh, no, no, that was Phil. Oh, Phil. Right. Thank you, Phil. Although, uh -huh. in fairness, I think I think originally, uh, at some point on Facebook, we were having a dialogue with Michael, and he mentioned, um, if you're going to do The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's a big thing to cover because of all the different media. And he listed some media that we didn't cover this time. But the nice thing is, Colin and I actually had a Skype call with Michael to get some of his thoughts on some of the stuff that we didn't get to um, encounter this time. Um, and we also got his thoughts on some of the other properties, because Michael is one of our longtime listeners. He's always somebody who's consistent uh, to give us feedback on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, and so we just kind of wanted, as a gesture of, of, you know, thanks for your support, we wanted to get his contribution in here. And, you know, with this media that we're going to be covering, we're, we're going to be talking about the radio play, we're going to talk about the book, we're going to talk about the television series and the movie. And... That's a lot of stuff for us to cover, and I, I know that nobody else out there wants to hear us whine about uh, how much work we have to do. Um, I'm depressed. <laughs> but I just wanted to uh, apologize to anybody out there who's been waiting on our new episode, because we didn't get one out in June. Um, but it was just between getting all this stuff consumed and trying to get a recording scheduled, it's almost like you guys trying to schedule something in the summer is more difficult than during the school year. Totally. Well, yeah, it's summertime in Oregon. Everybody wants to go outside. Yeah, because it's nice. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. Nobody, nobody wants to stay inside and recording a podcast. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but here we are. We're going to talk about it. This is It's finally happening, you guys. So, uh, yeah, let's do this. Um, so, I think the order we should go in is the order that we all kind of watched and listened and whatnot this time. Um, and we can start by talking about the radio play, then we'll go into the book, and then the movie and the TV series. Because that's what we did. Um, but first of all, I I guess I wanted to get a sense for everybody's um, history with the material. And I don't think most of us have much history with it. But um, why don't we start with Colin? I read the three-book series in the mid-90s. Uh, I would go down every weekend to Corvallis, play a bunch of... Uh, pep band gigs with the OSU marching or OSU pep band uh, and stay at a friend's house. And he happened to have the books. So I ended, ended up reading the three books and a whole bunch of Orson Scott card. Nice. 
So was that your entire history with it? Had you seen the movie previously or the TV series? Or No, no, just the book. Okay. What about you, James? Probably my first exposure was just pop culture with the whole 42 thing and Babelfish. Right. Yeah. Now, had you had you seen the movie previously? Yes. Okay. I had seen the movie, I think, around when it came out. Okay. But you had never never read the book or listened to the radio series? No. Okay. Nope. Yeah, for me, this was, uh, you know, the, the book was the first thing I encountered. It was one of the books on my trying to be a better nerd um, list, you know, along with Ender's Game and Lord of the Rings. And um, mm-hmm. so the Hitchhiker's Guide was, was one that I read. I, you know, I never continued the series and we'll get back to why probably later. But that's basically it. Um, you know, so none of us have real extensive histories with this entire corpus of, of adaptation. But somebody who does is Michael. And I asked him kind of what his history was with it as well. I mean, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Are, are you pretty attached to this property? Pretty much. I mean, I, I would be quite easily say that Douglas Adams is my favorite author. He's the one I always go sort of back to. And I do have a great deal of history with it. I remember, um, well, the TV show came out when I was pretty young. So that would have been the first exposure. And because of the TV show, you know, there was the game as well. And um, and I think my stepfather was the one that gave me a copy of the book. So, um, yeah, it was all sort of a quick sequence of things, but I think it was just a case of being, you know, a kid the right, t- you know, right place, right time sort of thing. So, you know, his point about hitting him at the right age, I'm curious, what do you think the right age is for this? Hmm, that's a good question. What do you think, Colin? Uh, well, I know Tim really likes it, my son Tim, and he is 15. And I remember reading it when I was in, you know, my mid to late 20s, and I enjoyed it then. On a reread, I found it kind of a slog. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm not talking specifically about the book. I'm just talking about any Hitchhiker's Guide stuff. It has a particular style, and, and I'm wondering if there's certain ages that it's more palatable for. I don't know. I would probably go with the the probably preteen or teen at least so they could get some of the nuances of the language cuz a lot of the a lot of the humor is uh clever and if you're not clever enough to get it you you're not going to yeah. find it humorous I think there is a lot of wordplay and so I feel like there's a certain maturity yeah. that you need to get some of the jokes but I think I I kind of get the impression right. that like with Michael um growing up with it like it was it was part of his culture almost um to the point that that he got it when he was younger and then grew to appreciate it more as he got older. And and so I, I kind of regret that I didn't experience it earlier. I'm kind of yeah. envious of, of his experience of it. Oh, so one other thing is it's pretty clean. There's there's not a lot of uh, sexy times or, or language right. or anything. A couple curse words here and there. But Okay, so why don't we jump into the radio play? I, I asked Michael about this as well. So at what point did you discover the radio show? And did you, you, you mentioned the LP. Is that how you first encountered the radio program? Oh, no, no. You, sorry. You did say that you heard it on the radio. Yeah, I heard a sing, single episode. Um, and then I just sort of put it to the back of my mind and I knew it existed. Um, but when I had, when I started what you guys might call a community college, we call it a technical college um, to do mm-hmm. my um th- um, certification for IT, um, I was introduced to a guy that I'm still friends with um, who is vision impaired and basically, obviously, because he can't see, he had a lot of um, radio series and that and he 
happened to mention, you know, that he was a big Douglas Adams fan, and he said, I've got all of the radio series. And I've just, you know, it's like, well, come this way, you know, let me get a, um, let me have a listen to these things. So um, that's how I first listened to the whole radio series was getting um, a lend of his copies and just sitting with a pair of headphones on listening to the whole series as a whole um, when I was about probably 19, 20. So there'd been a huge gap between when I'd seen the TV show, read the books, played the game, to actually listening to the radio series. And um, because it was done in stereo, listening to it with the headphones on, I think, was probably the best way to sort of experience it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that way all the sort of audio effects and everything that sort of made that production really, I think, stand out back in the day. um, Because I was reading somewhere that they were saying that it was the first radio drama um, actually produced in stereo. And um, Mm. I did hear a behind-the-scenes thing where they were saying that um, for the longest time they actually classified it as a drama because they were worried if they classified it as a comedy and it was in stereo, what happens if the person listening is listening in mono and they miss the punchline? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. so, so the BBC said, no, we, we can't classify it as a comedy. We'll classify it as, as something else until we can figure out that. And then they figured it out and reclassified it. So <laughs> got a lot of bureaucracy. So like Michael said, I think, I think, being able to listen to it with your headphones on and really zone into it would be the best possible way to listen to the radio play. That's I, I listen to it on my headphones. I, I listen to it through, I guess I got it through like library to go overdrive. And then, and then I bought it from audible as well. Um, you got to love the, the free audible preview <laughs> <laughs> because I, oh, we should probably mention that what we're talking about, about the radio play for the consideration of this podcast, we listen to the primary phase because there is also the secondary phase and the tertiary phase, um, and I don't know how many radio plays there are. But we, we have only, I think, at least I have only listened to the primary phase. Is that the same with you guys? Yeah. 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 Okay. So what do you guys think of the radio play? I love a full voice cast radio play. Nice. Just in general? Just in general. More than a single voice. And I've listened to like 15 or 20 audiobooks, which isn't mm-hmm. a lot compared to you or a lot of other people, but... Um, I listened to a lot of Brian Jake's works, which are which are full cast, and I really liked the radio play. Um, I also enjoyed a snippet of the radio play for Star Wars that I listened to. Again, right, full you have voice. that whole set, don't you? I do. I just start listening yeah. to it, like binge watching it. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with radio plays. We at some point we got those Focus on the Family Radio Theater, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe radio plays and those are really good mm-hmm. um, and those are a great way to experience those those books because it is full, a full cast like you said which is different than an audiobook where you have a narrator sometimes you have multiple narrators for different character viewpoints but um, they don't usually interact much um, but overall I mean what would you think of the actual Hitchhiker's Guide radio play did we lose Colin? No, I'm still here. Well, I thought you were talking to both of us, and I was going to let James talk first for a oh. change. Alright, how about this? How about this? So James, what did you think of the radio play? <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh. <laughs> well, may, maybe we should point out that, that um, so I listened to the full radio play on my own. And then uh, when we were heading to McMinnville or something, yes, to, to go do some disc golf. Yeah, yeah, um, McMinnville. Well, we, we went down to, for um, 
Porktopia, right? In our Port Porklandia. 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 Carlton, yeah. And then to do some disc golf, and uh, we listened to the radio play in the car on the way there, which is not right. necessarily an ideal way to do it when you've got the windows down and distracted. I think we only got through about half of it on that trip. Yeah. And you'd yeah. like to listen to it at one and a half speed. Which made hey, everyone you know, sound like they were the rapping. Right way to do it. That is not. The right <laughs> uh, many many people that I know who listen to podcasts and audiobooks and stuff listen to it on one and a half speed. I and, do not want to think about what I sound like so at one they, and a half speed. So they sound like squirrels. <laughs> I can say you sound like yourself, just a little faster. Just a little faster. Yeah. Okay. So for me, the radio play, I thought it was delightful. Um, I, I really enjoyed all the different voice performances you could you could always tell who was talking mm-hmm. um i love the voice of the guide which is just fantastic and i'm going to put it i'm going to drop in some um audio from that actually it's from the television program but it's the same guy far back in the mists of ancient time in the great and glorious days of the former galactic empire life was wild rich and on the whole tax-free Mighty starships plied their way between exotic suns seeking adventure and reward amongst the furthest reaches of galactic space. In those days, spirits were brave, the stakes were high, men were real men, women were real women, and small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were real small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. And all dared to brave unknown terrors to do mighty deeds, to boldly split infinitives that no man had split before. And thus was the Empire forged. Wait, is the same guy doing the narrating for the radio play as the television show? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they got nice. much of the same cast. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I mean, I guess they, they sounded similar, but, mm-hmm. you know, all the British sound similar. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I So I was... In, well, maybe we'll, we'll come back to this later, like my question about the main character. Um, we'll come back to that in the movie. So there is something very British about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and British humor is not the same as American humor. And some of it doesn't tickle me at all. Um, and, and in particular, the, for me, the worst, the worst part in the book and in the radio series is The Whale that materializes and only has a few seconds to come to terms with what it is before it crashes to the ground and leaves whale body parts all over the ground. Um, Didn't tickle your fancy, huh? I don't like it. It's just to me, it's, it's like, it's, it's a funny concept that is completely driven into the ground. And, and that's literally, literally. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. Um, No, it's it's like, that's, that's, that's a thing that I see in, in like hmm. British television shows, like the IT crowd, that that very first episode yeah. where the first time you meet uh, Roy, he's sitting there by the phone that's ringing and he's eating a muffin or something and he just keeps ignoring it. And then it looks like he's going to reach for it, but then he just starts licking his fingers. And then it looks like he's going to reach for it, but he reaches past it and gets his tea and drinks his tea. And then, you know, all the time the phone is ringing and it right. goes on and on and on. And that's, that's the kind of, that's something that I see in a lot of British humor um, where it's... Right. There is a point where it goes from being funny to being not funny, but then if it goes on long enough, it gets funny again. And but it's a fine line to walk. And for me, the whale one <laughs> never got funny again. So I thought the whale bit was funnier in the radio play than it ended up being in the movie or the TV show. See, I have to disagree. I actually enjoyed the visual to go along with it. it that's okay. You can be wrong. <laughs> I know I can. That's that's what I do here. <laughs> um, so what do you think, Colin? Weigh in on the whale. I, I liked the whale. I was more curious about the the dandelions or the germaniums in the pot. 
The potted plant? Yes. No, not again. Not again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, did you tell me or did Michael tell me that that, that is actually followed up in, in the rest of the book series? I think Michael did. He was really familiar with it. I read, like I said, I read all the books once 20 years ago. Okay. So, yeah, I, I'm not at all surprised that they did circle back to that. Um, but yeah. maybe one day I will, I will seek it out. Uh, anything else to talk about about the radio play? You know, I think that the radio play, and maybe I'm jumping ahead to talk about the book, but because it was performed and you had the tone and the delivery and the cadence of real people versus trying to read it, mm-hmm. I, I think they brought something to it that it gets lost in the book. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I would agree. And and this is a good time then to transition to talking about the book, I think. Um, because oh, you yeah. didn't ask me about the, the radio play. I guess he did. I did I just ask you about the away. radio play, and you and, and <laughs> right after uh, made some stupid joke, and I couldn't stop laughing. That wasn't fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Jimmy, what do you think of the radio play? I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. Actually, um, I I listened to it uh, with Emily on in the car while we were driving to and from uh, Silver Falls. Nice. So I I got to actually listen to the whole thing. Cool. Did she do? And it worked well listening to it in the car and in, in my car anyway because I have an actual stereo and speakers and stuff that sound good. <laughs> no offense, Colin. No offense, taken. <laughs> That's what happens when you spend like when you spend like four hundred and fifty dollars on the car. You can put a decent stereo in it. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> did Emily also enjoy it? Yes, she did. She actually, I think, preferred the radio play the best as well. Hmm? Uh, she read the book when when she was little. I think not little, but teenager or whatever. <laughs> Long, many, many moons ago. Uh-huh. So she was actually more familiar with the book than before even I was, I think. Oh, cool. Yeah, so she you know, she gets all the Babelfish and the 42 and all that jazz. Nice. Um, I think she probably liked the radio play the best, though. She doesn't really remember too much of the book since it's so long ago, but she wasn't a fan of the uh, TV show or the movie. so Especially the TV show. We can get into that later. Okay, but. Yeah. <laughs> so about the book. Yeah, let's talk about the book. Book. Don't talk to me about books. Well, it is really hard to talk about what is, in essence, you know, five adaptations of one original idea. Radio, book, TV, game, and film. And we're not going to cover the game. And yeah. every time Mr. Adams picked up the source material, he made changes to it. Right. And so, you know, my theory that adaptations should be absolutely faithful and that the author would prefer that uh, t- is turning out to be completely false in this case because every time he touched it, it was like he was t- touching and tweaking. Just in this case, huh? <laughs> Just in this case, only in this case, ever. Right. <laughs> well, I think I think Colin, the crucial the crucial bit there, the kind of ameliorating factor is that this was the creator of it making changes to it, whereas if somebody else had picked it up. And said, mm. okay, Mr. Adams, I have your thing, True. and I'm going to do what I want with it. Um, he might have felt differently about it if they'd made changes. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, being there, you know, he, he had more ideas and, and wanted, to, wanted to get them down. And, and, and we'll, talk, we'll talk about what the movie did um, later, because I think that necessitated some changes. But we'll, uh, we're talking about the book right now. Um, it is, but like you said, it is hard because we have a radio play that was adapted into a book, then a movie that was adapted from that book... And a TV series that was adapted from the radio play. And so it's, it's definitely not apples to apples in the same way that a lot of things we talk about are. Mm-hmm. So, but it makes a cool you know, adaptational consideration to see the w- different ways things can go based on what their sources, sources are. Because like, if we look back to um, 
Farewell to the Master, right? Um, mm-hmm. The Day the Earth Stood Still. Like, that original movie was adapted from that story, and then the second movie was adapted from that first movie, instead of readapting the story. And maybe it lost something in, in, uh, in being a copy of a copy. Yeah, could be. It's like cloning. Yeah. Yeah, so when I first encountered the book, I, I enjoyed it well enough. Um, but like I said, some, some of the humor, I felt like, okay, come on, let's, let's move on here. I, I definitely felt like this time there's some padding to the book over against the radio play and the, and the order of events is somewhat different. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact is it's very episodic. The entire thing is very episodic and that is harder to pull off in a book, I think. Um, and so like it would switch to Zaphod's point of view. And I'm like, I don't care about Zaphod stealing the heart of gold. Um, that was, you know, they, they alluded to it in the radio play and that was good enough. I didn't, I didn't need to see that scene. Well, and it's important, I think, to say that the book doesn't adapt the entire radio play. It's about one half to two thirds of it. It's about two thirds. Yeah. I think it covers like the first four episodes of the, of the radio series out of six. Um, so right. it ends with them heading for the restaurant at the end of the universe. And mm-hmm. th- I definitely want to talk about the restaurant at the end of the universe, at the end of the movie, because cause the, I have something, a point to make about that. But um, yeah, the book the book is a bit of a slog to me. And, and it's like, it's not as charming as the radio play. I will say, though, that I also listened to the audiobook after I read the book. Uh, and it's read by Stephen Fry, who was the voice of the guide in the movie adaptation. <laughs> oh, perfect. And the audiobook is much better than reading it in print. So it's something about the performance there, I think, Colin. I think you were onto something that 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 really does add something to it. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the book, uh, James? You you don't like to read, right? Not especially. I, I prefer uh, visual media. <laughs> nice. I, I like the I, don't know, I like the book, except for like you were saying the the point of view. I think that when the when it first switched from, I think it's probably the the second or third chapter when it switched from the Earth being blown up part to, uh, Zaphod's point of view of stealing you know becoming president and yeah. stealing the heart of gold, it was kind of confusing at first. I'm like, yeah. what the hell is this, and what does this have to do with the story? Sure. <laughs> um, so I I agree with you. It becomes a slog in those parts. Yeah. But uh, from the other parts, I, I like them. Yes. I guess I I, I liked reading it. Not as much as I like listening to it, but I didn't think the book was that bad. No, and and I won't say that it's bad. Um, it's just there's there's parts of it that that are kind of slow to me, and and part of it was like I was looking for I think the order of things that happened in the radio play, and like like I wanted uh-huh. to get to the forty two part, I want to get to the Magrathia part, right? And and so I was I was a little impatient to get there, and maybe that's a consequence of of ordering. I think yeah, of ordering definitely. I, I was about halfway through the book when we listened to the radio play. Oh. So I didn't really have that problem, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah. So and then, but 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 this, on that same note, though, after finishing the radio play, I finished reading the book, and I was I was again waiting for things to happen. I already knew what were going to happen. Right. Yeah. And then the, <laughs> and it never happened, and I was really yeah. confused. <laughs> um, Douglas Adams actually described the book as having a long beginning and an end, but not much middle, and I think that's pretty accurate, actually. Um, and that yeah. long beginning yeah. is that includes that Zaphod stuff. Right. Um, although I, I kind of felt like it didn't have an ending either, and that was my initial thought when I first read it. I was like, well, okay, so we have just stopped now. Um, right. But well, that's kind of how I felt about the whole thing. Yeah. And so, and I didn't every 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 version was like that. We're just kind of ended. Yeah. Well, I mean, to some extent, it's it's not really fair to criticize it for that because it is a series. 
Well, yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Well, and you know, as far as the book goes, uh, I think it Neil Gaiman wrote a, a biography about the Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy, and Douglas Adams has a little bit of his story in there too. And there's some Dirk Gentry and some uh, some Liff and other other parts, but it's primarily about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the whole overarching series. Mm-hmm. It took Mr. Adams seven years to write the radio play. Right. He worked on it for seven years. It took him twelve to wow. thirteen weeks to write the book, and it was late because every single time <laughs> he would pick up a project, someone else would come back to him with a project related to the radio play, and that's I think that's really where where his heart was was in yeah. writing scripts and radio plays and doing these other adaptations were interesting to him and he wanted to have his fingers in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it talked about how even as they did like the second set of radio plays, that toward the end of it, he would be writing it as they were performing the pages before the ones he was just writing. Holy crap. And so maybe maybe the book would have done with a good, you know, editing and thumping or reorganization or something else. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, the legacy of the book series, there's a lot of people who read it, love it, have no idea the radio play even exists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm just completely poo-pooing it. I, to me, it didn't grab me to the, to the point that I wanted to pick up the rest of the series and that's okay. Right. I would love to listen to, to more of the, the radio play. So, yeah. I'll, I think something like a book is probably more accessible to a lot of people too. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, I know for me in particular, it's easier for me to read and watch than to listen. Yeah. Uh, I have a very short attention span when I'm listening to things. Sure. <laughs> uh, discovered that in college. Yeah, I've <laughs> noticed that while we've been recording. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think radio play is kind of a lost art form. You don't you don't get that much of it anymore. And and right. we were actually talking video to, killed the radio star. Right. We, we were talking to Michael a bit about this and talking about you know podcasts are kind of the new radio play. Mm-hmm. And and there are lots of podcasts that right. do actual fiction. I'll drop in something from Michael here. I really enjoyed the books, although as a the age I was reading them, and probably now as well, I found that there was. It was a bit different the way it was written because of the fact that it had a lot of footnotes and mm-hmm. sort of um, things in the narrative that sort of stepped aside and then you'd go, you know, you go off this tangent and then you would go back to the narrative and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I did enjoy a lot of the jokes, although there was probably, um, I'm probably going to embarrass myself as an Australian here, but <laughs> um, there was a joke that took me at least, I think, to be fair to myself, about 20 years to actually get, where Ford Prefect was named, and I I went, oh, okay, um, when they say the Ford Prefect picked a name that was perfectly inconspicuous, right. I've gone, okay, yeah, Ford Prefect doesn't sound inconspicuous to me. Yeah. It wasn't until about 20 years later someone told me that it was actually a car. Right. That he had named himself after a car. I'd never seen a Ford Prefect, never heard of it. No one in my family had ever owned one. And it took me that long to figure out, oh, right, he named himself after the car. Yeah. Yeah. So, but um, I've always liked reading Douglas Adams' stuff. and But I just, um, yeah, I found that the jokes were funny. The, th- the observations were interesting. I just really enjoy his writing. I liked I liked what he said about that he felt like, like a bad Australian because he didn't get the Ford Prefect name. He didn't get the joke there. Which oh. <laughs> I totally can't uh, give him any hard time for because it's not a joke that translates very well. Um, because no. because the Ford Prefect was not a model that I think was in the U.S. at all. 
Um, and I guess I guess for people who still don't get it, um, the Ford prefix. That would have been funny if they funnier if they changed that for the at least for like the Hollywood movie. Right. And and that's <laughs> so we'll get back to that. But but yeah, so for me, like to make a faithful adaptation of this to an American audience, that should have been like mm-hmm. a Ford Escort or a Ford Taurus or something. Something or a Toyota right. Camry. Um, <laughs> that that would have been a better name. Because you know, like a really, really popular car in the US, because that's what it was in the UK at the time. Where right. where the joke is he thought it would be a nicely inconspicuous name, and it was actually the name of the most popular car model at the time. Yeah. Um but Michael didn't get that, which which It's a good looking uh, car. Is I looked it up. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's all the old cabbie cars, the traditional cabbie looking cars, I think. Oh. At least it looks like them. It's not exactly Those the same. Those have some style. One, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, further thoughts on the book? Or should we wrap up, move on to the movie? I think I'm good with the book. I think we kind of stated that. Okay. Yeah. So the movie, you know, I don't know all that much about the, the development process other than kind of what I read in. I had the. Um, I borrowed the ebook from from Library to Go, and it was the movie tie-in version. And so at the end, it had a bunch of interviews with the with the director and screenwriters and and a bunch of the actors, and and kind of some history of of the adaptation. and And this thing was in development hell for ages, mm-hmm. um, where Douglas Adams wrote I don't know how many different screenplays he wrote for it, and then then like they'd have somebody else write one, and then they'd give it back to him, and he'd write it. Um, and it's too bad that they that they didn't get it done before he died. Um, cause that's, that's sad, but yeah. Well, and as far as, you know, faithfulness goes, I think it, it, it's, it stands out as the one work that is the least faithful out of everything that we're, that we've read, watched, listened to, and heard about. Faithful to what? The radio play. Right. But it's not adapted from the radio play. It's adapted from the book. True. But and in that sense, it's a pretty faithful adaptation. Uh, no. <laughs> you don't think so? No. no. There were several things added to it that had yeah. nothing to do with the book. Like what? Uh, the romantic relationship between Ford and Trillian. All right, I'll give you that. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of that. So yeah, and 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 here's what they did, right? They turned it into a Hollywood formula movie. Yeah, it was too Hollywood. Yeah, my my biggest problem with the movie is that it was too Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't British enough. It was too Hollywood. Right. They should have had Monty Python do this movie. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. I, I could see that. It would have been made cooler. Yeah. I <laughs> and it would have it would have suited the whole storyline better that way too, because the whole. Uh, to me, anyways, the the radio play in the book is very choppy, yeah, more or less. Mm-hmm. And Monty Python, a lot of their work is also the same way, right? But that's it's not very disjointed. That's not how you do a movie, though. And that, and so so like on no way. On one hand, it's awesome. Okay. Monty Python, the Holy Grail is fantastic. Okay, Life Brian, same thing, fantastic. Okay, okay, I'll I'll, get, I'll give you that. But <laughs> let's let's say that they decide let's make a typical Hollywood movie out of this. Maybe they shouldn't, but if they decide to do that, there's not much of a through line in the book. It's it's kind of disjointed, and so they had to make it a little more linear. And they ruined the charm. I don't think they ruined the charm. I enjoyed the movie, um, and uh-huh. I've, I've seen it twice. I I think it's a good adaptation of the book. Other than I don't appreciate the the love story part, but I think my main problem with that is that that Zoe Deschanel is like a cardboard cutout. Um, I I have no idea right. how she gets work. I haven't seen her in many things. I liked her in Elf. Um, but like in uh, the happening, <laughs> she's a very boring actress. Yeah, yeah. But that I, wasn't a very was good movie, and it wasn't because of the acting in that case. Well, right, yeah. but everybody mailed it in um, for the happening. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, so I, I will say I, I'll, I'll drop in uh, Michael's thoughts here on the movie, and he 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 didn't mind the changes. 
I don't know, so so I'm curious, kind of your, your thoughts on on the movie, because opinions are always divided about adaptations of of beloved franchises, and um, you know, kind of having having that background in the books. Uh, what did you think of the film? Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought that they um, did really a different thing by um, casting Moz Def as. Um, Ford Prefect. I think the only stipulation that Douglas Adams ever had was, look, you can do whatever you want, cast whoever you want, just cast Arthur um, from as you know a British with a British actor. That was the only. Right, I read that too. Um, I think that they did it with a lot of care and love um, because just the way that um, I think there was they used Douglas Adams's image throughout the movie and also. Uh, there was cameos from his mum and his sister as well. There's a, uh old lady reading a paper, and that's his mum. It was a bit of an interesting misdirection with the whole musical number of So Long and Thanks for All the Fish before they played Journey of the Sorcerer, which is, you know, the proper theme song. But just little nods and that throughout the movie, um... The dual scuttling um, crabs, I think, were a nice little touch for the Vogon stuff because I know that's something that's mentioned in the book, but it's not mentioned in the TV show, but I think it might be mentioned in the radio show. There was a lot about the movie I liked. Um, the humour, when they turn into the sofas, and you've got two talking sofas. Yeah. I feel like a sofa. I know how you feel because I too am a sofa. Zaphod introducing forward is X, I think was, uh, you know, little tiny things that probably only, it would gloss over people that were just casual viewers, but those that had read the book, listened to the radio series, seen the TV show, it just added another layer to it. Um, the only really bits I didn't sort of like were the, uh, I think, um, having um, John Malkovich as Hamakavula sort of, I just th- I thought Hamakavula was just weird for weird's sake. It was just okay. He's taken off his glasses. He has no eyes. Um, it just didn't seem to have any other reason except to just be to weird people out. So yeah, the things that came up and slapped him in the face whenever they had any sort of thought that was a, a gangbusters idea. I thought that was. Yeah, it's like you know every time someone says I've got an idea, smack. <laughs> Right in the face, but, um, yeah, so but those sort of things I liked. I liked that they um, had the cameos from some of the old staff and the original prop from the TV show and those sort of things, but um, the the humour, you know, was, yeah, I found the humour really, really good, especially when they set up all that stuff with the, the Thor thing slapping in the face and then they rescue... Trillion, they walk outside and Martin's having, oh, Arthur is having this huge rant and he goes, well, it was my idea and the thing just slaps him in the face because it's like they've completely forgotten that whole thing until that point, until they walk outside and he goes, well, it was my idea, smack, right in the face. So. I was wondering if, if Michael, you were bothered by the changes between every instance of the story, between the book, the radio play, the LP, which is just a version of the radio play, the game, the movie. Did, did the changes bother you about that? Not really. Um, not really, Colin, because the way I looked at it was there was always some sort of new thing to sort of have a look at and um, a digest. And it wasn't like a sacred 
text sort of thing that where um, if a comma was changed or anything, it just that I was outraged. It was more like um, he's done something different to it or added something in or taken something out and trying something out. So it just it never really bothered me that much. I think it, probably because it's a humorous thing, it's it doesn't take itself too seriously. Whereas mm. I think the things that probably do take themselves relatively seriously when they're adapting different things and that's when the actual issues sort of occur i think mm-hmm. yeah that's that, that's probably yeah. my take on it is you know, people were sort of you know oh they've changed this in the movie they've changed that in the movie and it's like well, who cares it's still hitchhiker's movie <laughs> they're the yeah. earth's still going to get blown up he's still going to probably trap around the universe in his pajamas with his towel you know, as long as there's basic things that aren't changed does it really matter that much so what do you think of um, Michael's notion that because this is a property that doesn't take itself too seriously, um, making changes to it aren't as big of a deal? They don't do as much harm. What do you think? Colin thinks you're wrong. I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. There, you, you're, you're, you're one of me now. Um, I will say that I agree with him to the extent that the changes worked. Um, because like the love story change, I didn't like, I liked Mm-mm. some of the additions. Um, I liked that they pulled some stuff from other, other so What properties. changes did you like that worked then? We already established the love story was stupid. So. Right. I liked, uh, I liked the, the fancy dress party, which is something they got. Yeah, right. it was actually correct. Yeah. Where they, they got, they got they that screwed right. that up in the TV show. Yeah. Where it's supposed to be dressing up as people. And yeah. I liked, uh, I liked the meet cute between Arthur and Trillian. Um, and the and the bit where where he's like, because these people are all idiots, right? As all the music stops, it, it was it was <laughs> classic um, Martin Freeman, actually, right there. Right, and you know, um, I like Marvin. Marvin was fantastic. I liked Marvin a lot. Um, he's very different than in the in the television series, and very different from the way he's described in the radio. But he nails it in the. It's Alan Rickman. You you can't go wrong with that. That's true. Um, Michael. No, the, the thing I liked about Marvin, though, is that he was a cute robot, but all, but depressed. Right. It's like, like Grumpy Cat. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it. It's rubbish. Right. Yeah. Like- As opposed to in the, in the TV show where he was kind of a ghetto looking robot, but still the depressing thing was hilarious. Yeah. Well, I like the, the part where, you know, I come from Earth. It's a beautiful place. I've heard about it. It sounds awful. <laughs> it sounds awful. <laughs> Did they have oceans? I loathe oceans. Yeah. <laughs> So, so remember, Mike, Michael mentioned that he he enjoyed the bit with the things slapping in the in the face, and I I enjoyed that too. That was that was an additional scene. I liked the fact that they went to Vogsphere or wherever it was. I loved the bit about him, um, Arthur walking into that room and seeing that it's like a big. It looked like the DMV, and he's like, "Okay, I'm an Englishman. I can cue." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great, and that that, that was appropriate. That stuff was added by Douglas Adams, um, and that's probably why it works for me. Uh-huh. Um, there was one other thing. What was it? Oh, the, the bits about the... My favorite joke in the entire movie is the, the, uh, the creatures with 50 sets of arms and uh, the, them being the first species oh, right. to, uh, to <laughs> invent the aerosol deodorant before the wheel. <laughs> I thought that was a great joke. Um, I, I, liked, I didn't mind the Hamakavula character you know john malkovich is cool um the whole thing with the church with the sneezing and the, the achoo is there or bless you and i think achoo was amen and then they said bless you that was right. part of their liturgy that's out of the restaurant at the end of the universe actually mm-hmm. um 
And uh, so, yeah, I, I liked a lot of the changes. I just didn't, I didn't care for the love story. The little animations were fun, too. I like the... Yeah, one, one of the criticisms I've seen of the movie is that there aren't enough of them. That the, that the, the guide itself is not enough of a character. And so this, is, this brings me back mm-hmm. to something I wanted to talk about. About mm-hmm. who is the main character of the radio play in the book versus who's the main character of the movie. And I feel like in the movie, it's clearly Arthur. But in the radio play, it's, you could almost make an argument that the hitchhiker's guide itself is the main character. What do you think? It reminds me of Seinfeld. It's how so? It's really about nothing. So if we were going to try and summarize the yes. plot to this, it would be uh, a guy leaves his home and then gets, you know, goes hitchhiking on a spaceship because the Earth is destroyed. Right. But it's really not all about him. And yeah, it's it's weird. I don't think there is a main character. Yeah, it's 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 certainly there's not a Hollywood formula to it, and so to press it into a Hollywood form, I think it mm-hmm. does do some violence to the material. Mm-hmm. For me, it still worked. I I enjoyed it. Um, Michael did mention that there was a a post credit scene or mid credit scene um, that that when he was when he was telling us about that, Colin, you and I were both like, I think we missed that too because he had left the theater before before it hit. Oh, but I I actually looked it up, and it was the um, it was the bit about the. From the radio play, it's the the part where Arthur says, "Like I don't have a good handle on my life" or something like that. Do you remember that part? And then it, then it, like a, fr- a freak wormhole opens up yeah, and it starts yeah, a big yeah. war. Oh yeah! Right. It turns out that was the largest possible insult in the language. Right, and so so that's <laughs> right. that's the thing. Only it changes it to Arthur saying, "I wouldn't go anywhere without my wonderful towel," um, which I think is is fine actually. That was a cool little animation in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, and and I did, I did, I do. Dog. Yeah, I do like that. That um, due to a, a horrible miscalculation of scale, the entire armada is consumed by a small dog. Um, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. So I'll put in the show notes the mid credit scene. I found it on YouTube. What do you think of the cast of the movie? Uh, I was not in love with the guy they cast for Ford Prefect. I felt like def- compared to the the radio play, and then later on when I watched mm-hmm. the, the television series, uh, he just he wasn't there. He didn't have that kind of, you know, I'm the the knowing alien who is going through the universe. Right. Right. Yeah, I I like Mostef. I've seen him in a couple other things. I liked him in uh, The Italian Job. Um and I've I've seen him in other stuff where I've really enjoyed him. In this, I liked bits of it. I I liked the beginning um where he meets Arthur. I I liked that he was wheeling along a a complete shopping cart full of booze. <laughs> Um, and I like that he tried to introduce himself to a car. That that was a great bit. I I really like that. I felt like that was very true to to Douglas Adams. And the mm-hmm. interesting thing that Michael pointed out was that the car that almost runs him over is a Ford Prefect. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. So yeah. That, that's that's an excellent Easter egg there um, for fans. And so yeah, I liked. I didn't mind the fact that he wasn't British. And Douglas Adams himself said, when it comes down to it, my principle is this. Arthur should be British. The rest of the cast should be decided purely on merit right. and not on nationality. Well, I think it's almost appropriate that he's not British because he's alien right. in the first place, right? Yeah, so. and so I, I like that bit about, well, I guess you're not from Hamford or where, wherever it was. Um, some super fan will correct me on that. Please do. Fire away. Yes. Right. It's uh, feedback at pavementpodcast.com. <laughs> Tell Seth he's wrong. That's that's what we do. I'll I'll take that day uh, off. That's what everybody loves to do. Yeah, I did enjoy uh, Sam Rockwell as as Zaphod because you know he just chews scenery like nobody's business. Um, he is really <laughs> obnoxious, but I think that was right. inten- intended. I I love the uh, the credits with the um, 
the dolphins singing so long and thanks for all the fish. I thought that was a nice addition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was fun. I don't know, Colin, you, you like a musical number, right? I like, I love a musical number. I, I like a redemption story too, but there really was no redeeming anybody here. <laughs> right. I, I also like that when the credits actually rolled, um, they brought up the radio play music. The dun dun da 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 dun dun da 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 Yes. So I would have liked to have seen him have two side by side heads. Yeah, and and I looked in in that um, in that extra material in the book that I read the the screenwriter or director I think it was the director said that you know Men in Black Two had come out pretty recently and they had that head on a stick thing going in that um, and it wasn't very effective and the movie kind of sucked and so they they decided they didn't want to be derivative of that so they went with a, a more obnoxious thing well and when we talk about the television show we'll talk about special effects yeah yeah we will yeah I would have preferred the two heads too like what Colin is saying but. I suppose in uh, in context, that's fair enough. I guess maybe. Yeah, we, we talked about uh, Alan Rickman, who of, of course was amazing as Marvin. Mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm higher on the movie than you guys are, and and one thing that I loved about it was all the practical effects. I like I like that the Babelfish was was a practical effect. I like that the Vogons were uh, Henson creations, mm-hmm. and they were kind of brought in as the primary antagonist, which I thought made sense. Except that the book doesn't have an antagonist. I know, and the book is wrong about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I said it. Um, well, see, that's the thing. The, the, the radio play and the book were about nothing. Mm-hmm. And the movie is about something. Yeah. So they had the, they, they, they smushed it into a, a Hollywood formula, like you were saying. So. Yeah, but the Vogons as a primary antagonist, I think, work pretty well. And, and, eh, and I liked, not, I liked kinda, the effects really. for them. And I liked the... Resistance is useless. They should have said resistance is futile. <laughs> that would have been they a funny totally inside joke, I suppose. But um. <laughs> It's well after Star Trek, so they totally could have went with it. And it would have been hilarious. Yeah. No, but it, it actually predated Star Trek. That's from the book, isn't it? The movie it? didn't. The movie yeah, didn't, but the though. movie didn't. No, but think about how prescient he was. T- today we have Wikipedia, and that is totally uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, we have portable translation yeah. devices, which we don't put in our ear yet, but we will at some point, and that's the babblefish. Yeah. Um, right. What else? You know, the prevalence of tea towels. Everyone has one now. True. True. So so one interesting thing from the movie is one of the last lines of the movie is um, Ford says, I know this good restaurant at the end of the universe, and then they take off, and then Marvin says, the restaurant is at the other end of the universe. <laughs> and that was the sense that oh, I yeah. took that to mean when I read the book originally, that it was a restaurant at Sucker. the end of space, not at the end of time. So what I was delighted when the radio play kind of went into de- detail of what the end of the universe meant, and and that right. was that was pretty cool. So yeah, I thought I thought that was better. <laughs> yeah, and, and the whole thing about you've already left, but and yet you're still here, <laughs> right? But I suppose for the context of the movie, it made more sense to be in space rather than time, and it's very loopy. I think the story in general is, you know, Ar- sure. yeah. yeah. Arthur has to leave his house because it's going to be run over to, to put in an expressway. And then the earth gets destroyed because it's going to be in the, in the way of a hyper express, <laughs> hyper express spaceway. And, uh, yeah, uh, they both use Hyperspace the same lines. Expressway. Well, you know, all the plans were on display at your local planning office, whether it was in the basement guarded by a tiger yeah. or on Alpha Centauri. And we don't have space travel yet. The people yeah. that saved them coming out of the Vogon ship is the girl that he tried to date. <laughs> It's, that's what I mean yeah. about being loopy, right? All these things get brought yeah, in yeah. and tied back into one another, and it's it, it makes a nice plot. 
Okay, one of my favorite, one of my other favorite jokes in the movie is when the Vogons, you know, people of Earth, you know, uh, demolition beams will be whatever, you know, this will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. And, and then there's the big outcry from all the cities. And you hear people, right. no, no, no. And then it goes to the English countryside and it's a bunch of sheep going, meh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was funny. And I didn't know if it was like a, a jab at a particular part of England or, or what, or if it was just meant to be funny. Just a little slapsticky. Yep. So, you know, talking about that whole Hollywood mold, I think the very concept of the Hitchhiker's Guide kind of falls out of that because they keep interrupting the plot line to make all these, you know, what are essentially footnotes. The Hitchhiker's yes. Guide to the Galaxy lists the three worst poets in the entire history of the galaxy. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the kind of thing where in a lot of movies narration can really take away from from what's going on. You know, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, you couldn't tell this, so so now you're, you're well, you couldn't show this, so you, now you have to tell it. Where with the Hitchhiker's Guide, I think it's a little more organic. Like you, you expect that, and people, like I said, criticize the movie for not having enough uh, guide entries. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite parts. I wonder if the movie would have been better if they made it about the guide, and like you were saying. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, instead of this whole love story thing. Yeah, I feel like as as changes go, that the love story angle there was the main problem. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you guys uh, are are thumbs down ish on the movie, at least. No spoilers. Yeah, maybe. We'll let you know in a little bit. No, you don't have to. I mean, we usually say if we liked it or not. Michael liked the movie, and I liked the movie. So, you know, that's that's two of us who, who enjoyed it. it. It wasn't, like, rollerball, so. <laughs> it was palatable. rollerball. Better than rollerball. <laughs> of, course, of course, you know, for the sake of Michael, who's, who's listening to this, and, and we gave him a hard time on the, right. when, on the Skype call about, about rollerball. Um, <laughs> although, James, you and I enjoyed the 1975 one. But to be clear, that's the re- rollerball remake, which is probably the worst film i've ever seen and that includes the sound of thunder so <laughs> oh and the happening. i don't know i think uh i, I think it's still catwoman is probably the worst movie i've ever seen okay with, and with holly berry nice all right well why don't, why don't we move on and talk about the tv series the, the tv you mean talk about the worst lighting ever oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah welcome to bbc television from the 1970s yep yeah or 1980s and, and so I, I, I it looked like someone was filming a stage play yeah, yeah, and 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 that, that's what it looked like back then. And I, I asked Michael about this. I asked him what he thought about the TV series. So, so what are your thoughts on the TV series? Uh, I didn't mind it. It was good that they got a lot of the original cast from it, except for a couple of exceptions. I know that um, they recast Trillian and gave her an American accent. Oh, she had an American accent. She used her American accent because I think the right. the producers said, "Oh no, no, use use your natural voices. You'll be fine." Which was um, an interesting choice, but and the guy that played for Prefect wasn't the guy that played it on the um, radio serial, so. Yeah, for the longest time, that was sort of the definitive one for me because basically it was the one I, you know, saw that represented what was on the in the book, and it was the book given life and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so no, I didn't, I didn't mind it. Um, having watched Doctor Who probably since birth, it just I, I was yeah. used to the production values and that sort of stuff, so I wasn't really phased by. Um, you know, as other people probably now looking back at it would say, well, it looks a bit, you know, cheap and, uh, you know, cardboard sets and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I, I liked Michael's bit about he grew up on Doctor Who, therefore he's not offended by the production values of BBC television. Uh, yeah, that's yes. where I'm coming from. And 
that's not where I'm coming from. And so I, I am very offended uh, yes, <laughs> by the production yeah. values, as I was in, um, on the day of the Triffids, right? Yeah. In both cases, we have something that's very, very faithful. Yeah. See, all you old timers, I grew up on Star Trek Next Generation, so I'm used to that kind of production quality. No, no, I didn't grow up on Doctor Who. I grew up on original <laughs> Trek, so I can let some of it pass. Oh, yeah. Touche. But so I liked I liked like what Michael said that they that they used much of the same cast. Um, you know, Ford was recast, and I think he said Trillian was recast as well. Um, but to me, you know, the main problem is it's barely an adaptation. It's it's um, it's word for word in most places, and I don't see the point. You get but, you got to see what you had heard. That's the point. I got to see what I had heard, and it was boring. Ah. See, so this is my problem, right? <laughs> going, going between the audio medium and the visual medium. Now that you don't have to be keeping someone's ears entertained, you can slow things down because it's on the screen. And that is, it does not serve the actual TV show. Did you play the TV show at one and a half speed? Uh, I probably did. <laughs> and it was still slow. So, um, because, yeah, you can do that on YouTube. Um, right. And that's that's where I find it. I'll drop a, a link in so people can can see it that way if they want to. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I will say that that even though I I'm critical of it because it didn't take any risks, it, it did almost exactly the same thing as the radio play did, and and just you know in a visual medium with brutal special effects and and terrible production values. Right. So kind of what's the point? On the other hand, it's still pretty darn charming just because the source material is awesome. Well, and think about the use of computer graphics. For, 19, for 1981, those were some pretty radically good computer graphics. I will say that the Hitchhiker's Guide entries were very good. I, I enjoyed yeah, those. Yeah, I like the, the animations were awesome. Yeah, they were very kind of 8-bit looking, um, yep. but, but yeah. I loved that. 8-bit mm-hmm. was probably you know beyond state-of-the-art at that point. It probably, yes. Yeah, so I, what do you think, Colin? Did you like the, the television series, or did the production values take you out of it? Yeah, you know, I, I watched the origin, you know, Star Trek, the original series. I watched a lot of the 50s and 60s uh, sci-fi TV shows, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, Gosh, Lost in Space, mm-hmm. uh, Land of the Giants. Uh, there's another one that I'm forgetting. Uh, the Outer Limits, right? I mean, uh, not just looking at like the iRobot from 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 the Outer Limits. Yes, yes. And I watched Doctor Who, and so yeah, I knew it was a BBC production from the 1970s and 80s, and I was not going to see, you know, sterling, sparkling kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. that didn't bother me so much. Right. And uh, I like a really faithful adaptation. It's like I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's right up there with Redemption Story. And I don't think they slowed down the television show that much because it stayed about the same length as the sum of all the radio shows. Yeah. I think you've just ruined your sense of, of timing because you listen to everything at rapid speed. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. But, but, but like I said, I'm pretty sure I watched it at, at one and a half speed. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not a big fan of the TV series, I, but, uh, but we'll get back to that in the rankings. Yeah. What about you, James? Uh, for the most part, the TV series came across to me very deadpan. The I, it wasn't as entertaining as the movie, or the book, or the TV, or the radio play. Like I enjoyed the acting, the voice acting in the radio play better than I did the acting in this TV show. Nice. Surprising for a BBC BBC show, but yeah. yeah. Although I did prefer their presentation of the gargle blaster in the TV show to the movie. Speaking of which, James, uh, are you drinking a gargle, gargle blaster at the moment? No, I finished it. Okay, it's gone. <laughs> so, is it? Like being smacked upside the head with a, a wedge of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick? Yes. Okay. I'm about to fall over. <laughs> okay. I, meanwhile, I have to uh, subsist with just a little glass of dihydrogen monoxide. You sad, sad being. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if we had been able to get all this stuff done and get something scheduled, we were going to come to your house and I was going to dislike a gargle blaster at your house. 
Right. Um, yeah. There's actually a fair amount of internet debate about what the you know, Earth version of a pangalactic gargle blaster is because we don't have good trade off world. Uh, people have over the years, you know, it came up right. with recipes for that. So James came up came up with one. Uh, there was a a chef in training at our church that got us that got us another one uh, that we haven't tried mm-hmm. yet. And there's a Wikipedia right. book on bartending that lists several of them, along with places where you can go uh, and actually have a pangalactic gargle blaster. And it being Portland, it turns out there is a place that you could go uh, if they were actually open at the times that they say they were right. on the internet. <laughs> so James and Emily tried to go to this pub, which I think is at the pub at the end of the universe. Yep. And and we were going to have a pangalactic gargoyle blaster, but they were closed, so we kind of missed out. I'll have to drop a I'll have to drop a screenshot of the shirt that James is wearing into the show notes because it's it's topical. Yes. So yes. So do you want to share your top secret pangalactic gargoyle blaster recipe with our listeners? Oh sure, why not? Go for it. So actually, I'll start. I'll start off with the recipe that's actually listed in the book, <laughs> and then how I interpreted that, and then my end kind of finished recipe, I suppose. Okay. So in the book, we have the 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 recipe is juice from one bottle of the old Jenks spirit, which there is no such thing as old Jenks spirit. I would think that would be old so, underwear then, right? <laughs> <laughs> which is a deep cut Close. back to predestination. <laughs> Touche. Um, so, and then in that regard, I just, I, I interpreted spirit as some, some liquid that's supposed to be high volume alcohol, low volume, anything else, most likely clear. So I used vodka. Nice. <laughs> and then the second, second ingredient is one measure of water from the seas of, I'm going to probably butcher this, but Sanchaginus. Sounds pretty good. And, uh, so seas, I'm like, eh, seas, salt water. Okay. So salt. <laughs> and then three cubes of Arcturian Mega Gin. That one's kind of obvious. It's gin. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I didn't go through the trouble of trying to use nitrogen to freeze it into a nice ball and throw it into the drink. I just used it, you know, cold. Okay. Really, really, really cold gin. Nice. And then four liters of Fallian Marsh Gas to bubble through. So you farted which, while you were. So I, so I farted in the glass <laughs> to make it bubbly. <laughs> Seriously. No. <laughs> no, you probably used a soda stream. Although in hindsight, I probably should have. <laughs> you know, with our long experience with you, James. I wouldn't <laughs> and then the, the next ingredient, the next line they have you, uh, over the back of a silver spoon, float a measure of mint extract. So rather than using mint extract, though, I went right to the source and just used mint. There we go. And then they have, uh, oh, Colin, you mentioned this earlier, the Algolian Sun Tiger Tooth. Yes. So the, the so what they in the book they dissolve this tooth in the liquid, which is supposed to like create this look of fire in the drink. And at, actually, my first thought there was like, huh, I got some red tums. I could probably drop that in there. <laughs> like Alka Seltzer, right? Yeah, Alka Seltzer. But then I was like, well, okay. So what's the point of fire? Fire is like hot, and so I was like, well, maybe that's spicy. And then I was like, chili powder. I could use chili powder. Oh. <laughs> and then they have uh, sprinkle zamphor, which I have no idea what sprinkle zamphor is. I came across a f- bunch of recipes though that kind of translated this into something along the lines of lemon or lime zest. Mm. And then the last ingredient is add an olive, so that was kind of easy. Olive done, nice. Um, and so my overall recipe is a shot of vodka, a shot of gin, a handful of muddled mints, pinch of salt, and a pinch of chili powder with lime zest. Nice. Mm-hmm. And then I shake it, pour it, bubble it with uh, soda water, and add an olive. And the result is it palatable? It is palatable. It's minty. Uh, the is minty. The subtle hint of salt and chili. So it's not bad. Yeah, and bubbly. Bubbly. 
Nice. And I used a pretty high quality uh, gin and vodka, so it's not oh, that horrible bitter juniper taste that most gins have, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of gin. Yeah, you're on <laughs> you're on record as not not being a fan of gin. Yeah. Uh, so it came out pretty well, though. Yeah, I liked it. All right. Nice work. Going above above and beyond there, buddy. Right. <laughs> Sacrifices must be made. Yes, exactly. Okay, so so we have uh, we've covered the four things that we were going to cover, but Michael actually um, had some additional info on the comic book, and so I'm going to drop in his opinion of that right here. Basically, DC I think around '93 adapted the first three books to the comic book as as well. I've, I've picked that up, but it's um, I'm not a huge fan of it. I suppose I've only gotten it because I'm a bit of a completist, but um, yeah, the actual writing isn't bad. It's just the um, the art that I sort of I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah, it's it's it, you know if if you guys were showing Hitchhikers to your kids, it's probably depending on how strong a reader they were, it w- might be a good way to actually introduce it to them. But apart from that, it's just I wasn't really impressed with it. It sounds like uh, maybe the art style isn't isn't to his taste. And and that's definitely a factor in, in comics. There's sometimes where I pick one up and I'm like, that story was good, but I didn't like the art style. I kind of like the, in comic book, I kind of like the art style that's more almost photoreal, where then you have some, some stuff that's a little more abstract and I don't, I don't always care for that. So, but, you know, different strokes. Mm-hmm. So then he, he also told us a bit about the game. Yeah, the, just the writing, um, I think, in the Hitchhiker's one was just pretty much a step above because of how much interaction. I think it was literally Douglas Adams and um, Steve Moretzky was the programmer, and they were the only two people working mm. on it. So there was, mm, there was nice. Basically, it was more like a collaboration. So um, there would be things that this um, the programmer would add, but there was a lot of the Douglas Adams stuff. Um, added into it all the different ways you could die and that sort of thing like um <laughs> i think there's a there's a bit in it where it goes um uh because of what you've done you know the universe has come together and um people have stopped fighting there are no wars there's no famine there's no pestilence and it doesn't mean anything to you because you're dead <laughs> <laughs> nice so what do you think? You you recommend it for for big fans of Hitchhiker's Guide? Um, yeah, because it's got a lot of that text that you can't get anywhere else. I think it's yeah for uniqueness and also I think for sort of getting into that mindset that we we all experienced where um, like the radio series you've got to use your imagination to fill in the blanks. So, mm-hmm. like, um, if I listened to Hitchhiker's Guide without seeing the TV show, I would have had to come up with my own image of what Zayfob was like, what Ford was like, and all that sort of stuff. Sure. And I think that's very similar to the game. It's just, um, I suppose it's sad in one way that um, my pictures of that have been, uh, tainted isn't the right word, but influenced is probably better. Um by mm-hmm. that actual, um, the TV show and the other media sort of seeking into that. So I've got a preconceived idea of this is how this person is supposed to look as opposed to having right. your own image of it in my head. I, I like I the bit uh, that he said there about the, the way that it tells you you're dead in this very flowery language. 
and so I, I will put a link to the, the game. There's, a, there's like a Flash version of it available. Um, and, and it is a lot of fun. And I, I cannot get past the bulldozer. Um, so so, so the, first, the first time I played it, um, you know, it starts you off in bed. And so you have to get up. You have to turn on the lights, um, you know, take an aspirin. And, uh, and then, like, I, I go over and pull the shades and, and, and there's a bulldozer. And then I, I took too long to get out of the house and the house was knocked down. Um, and, and it said something like, uh, the bulldozer, while you're doing this, the bulldozer knocks down your house. You suffer a broken leg on your way to the hospital. A Vogon constructor fleet comes by and destroys the earth to make way for a hyperspace bypass. So, yeah, very creative. The writing in it is really good, like Michael said. Well, cool. A lot of the writing came from Douglas Adams. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a team up between him and the, and the game developer. And, you know, it's one, of those, it's one of those things where, like, Colin, I know you and I grew up on, on those text adventure games like Zork. And I can't even remember the other name. Zork is the big, the big ticket item. Yeah, it's, it's the big one. Uh, yeah. Leather Goddess is a Phobos. Anything from Infocom. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that one sounds like, a, uh, like an adult film. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree with Michael with his assessment that the um, – kind of the uniqueness and, and flavor of the guide is is there in the game. And so it's if you if you enjoy any one of the properties of the Hitchhiker's Guide, I think I think the game would definitely be something you'd want to check out. Mm-hmm. So but I do want to thank Michael for for having a Skype call with us. We had tried to figure out a way to get him on with us and and you know the the timing would have ended up our, our preferred recording time would have ended up in the middle of his work day and and we weren't able to make any weekends work so but thanks michael for being flexible and for for dropping us some audio um we do appreciate it definitely and i was there to help appreciate him directly so yes you were all right so why don't we rank them um i i did ask michael so i'll drop in his right here i would probably say radio series book movie and then the tv series the, my reason for that is that just that um the radio series is where it all springs from. So to me, that's the you know the origin of it. The book's a reasonably good adaption of the radio series, and um, as you were saying, um, Seth, the movie seems a lot like an adaption of the book. And I suppose with the TV series, I'm not ranking it last because of its um, quality. It's more a case of um, you can probably forgive the sins of the movie a lot easier because it's more recent. Than you know the issues that we were discussing before with the production values of a BBC TV show. So what about you guys, James? Oddly enough, the same. Really? Radio, book, movie, TV. Okay. What- Not necessarily because of the production value, but uh, to me, I, I the acting didn't come across for me either. Okay. Really, I can forgive the production value because it's you know it's the '80s or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What about you, Colin? Uh, I'm going to be predictable. Uh, radio, TV, book, movie. Okay. You feel like the TV is a better adaptation of the radio series than the book is? I do. Uh, from from a faithfulness standpoint, I, I can agree with you. Yeah. And I felt like the, yeah, this this is hard for me, right? I felt like the book was kind of a slog. And maybe it's because at that point, I, you know, I had listened and watched so many things that I was waiting for things to happen instead of enjoying them as they happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. I see. I know what you mean. So for me, I I went radio, movie, book, TV series, mm-hmm. and my my reasoning is, I thought the film was better than the book. I mean, obviously, I, I I wouldn't have ranked it that way if I didn't think so. I just I thought it it gave it more of a through line. I didn't like all the changes that that it made, but the ones it did make, I th- I thought uh, it was more entertaining. So, 
where the book I thought eh, was just a bit of, a bit meh for me, and the, right. and then the TV series is unnecessary. So, <laughs> so my my I, I think I think the the the, the overall impression uh, from all of us, um, even with Colin sighing at my at my Philistine ways, um, <laughs> is that the the radio play is something that that should be sought out by people if possible. Oh, definitely, um, and yes. listen to it one speed. Yeah. I thought it was great. Yeah. And, you know, if any, I mean, thanks to Phil for pointing out that the radio play was the first uh, form of this because I wouldn't have thought to, to give it priority. And I'm really, really glad I did because that, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. So we have covered, covered another classic thingy and we're going to do another one. Yes. Uh, hey, hey, before we close this out, I want to, I want to try and add something new. And Seth, if you don't like this, cut it out. There's this, this topic on the internet about whether or not old science fiction should be read. Okay. And so, uh, even though The Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy shows up on a lot of top 100 sci-fi books or top 50 sci-fi books, is this something that you would recommend to people to read? Would you say, yes, this is really important to sci-fi and culture and you should read it? Or would you go, well, you could do this and it might might be interesting to read, but you could probably skip it and not miss anything? Hmm. That's a good question. If If you pinned me down, if you were asking about the entire Hitchhiker's Guide canon, I would say do the radio play. Because that would be my priority, because I feel like that's the best presentation of the material. Uh-huh. But if you're just going to limit it to the book, and and I think that the book is more prevalent, right? Obviously, we didn't know about the radio play. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even though, you know, I read it the first time, wasn't a huge fan, read it the second time, was even more not a huge fan. I would say, <laughs> I would, I would say yes, this is something that should be read. And you, you need to go in with the right frame of mind and, and look at it as a trifle, because that's, that's really kind of what it is. So, yeah, I, what, what do you think, James, about the... Um, would you recommend this as something to read if you're a fan of science fiction? You want to read classic science fiction? Yes. Okay. Way to be uh, prolix about it, James. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Uh, monosyllabic. That is that is good stuff. All right. So what do we do next? Uh, I think we're doing your shirt. We are doing my shirt, and I will drop it into the show notes as, as a clue, and then I will explicitly spoil it. So you don't even have to go look. Uh, we are going to be talking about Fahrenheit 451 from Ray Bradbury, and we're going to, if all goes well, have Phil Nichols on to help us about that, because he is editing a uh, an edition of the journal that comes out of the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. That's all about the anniversary of Fahrenheit 451, and so we will be talking with him at some point next month. We'll be talking with him about Fahrenheit 451, and he will give us some, I'm sure, great insight into that book and you know where it comes from and its influence. So we're going to have to get crackalacking on that one, um, get the book read, and get something on the calendar to record so that it doesn't slip away from us again. Okay. Um, hmm, I, I've got no blessing. Oh, dude, this should be the easiest blessing in the world. Yes. Here, I'll do, I'll do four of them to show you how easy it is. Okay. So we're going to sign off now. Until next time. Yes. So may the road rise up to meet you, and may you always 42. <laughs> yeah, no. May the road rise up to meet you, and may you always have a spare babblefish in your ear. There we go. That's, that's not bad. May the road rise up to meet you, and may you always have a tea towel. There we go. Yes. Yeah, so may, may you always know where your towel is. Yes. And so the last one is, so long, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> I like it. Well done. Yeah. I don't know what was going on there. I just started hearing an echo. But that's okay. I was bloviating. Yes. Go ahead, James. <laughs> I think the anniversary is actually in September or October. Dang it. I should know what I'm talking about. Yes, you should. <laughs> eh, that's, as usual, you don't. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs>